production. Four-time Grammy Award winner Olivia Newton-John's appeal is clearly timeless. With a singing, songwriting and acting career spanning more than five decades, she is still a vibrant, creative individual adored by fans around the globe. Olivia says to be loved is the most basic of human needs. Like a flower, it waters the human soul. But to love is a true blessing. This is something that has kept her going during her darkest days dealing with stage four breast cancer. In this intimate conversation, Olivia shares what she has learned about the strength of the present moment, how the movie Grease changed her life and the power of the mind-body connection. What you think and what you feel affects your whole anatomy, your whole body. So it's really important what you put into your mind as well as into your mouth for health. You know, the thoughts that you choose to keep and the thoughts that you choose to not think about is really important. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Olivia's dream to live in a world without cancer is shared by many. The celebrated Greece actress is doing whatever she can to make that happen, leading the Olivia Newton-John Foundation to fund cancer treatments and research into plant-based medicine. She's also just released her new single, Window in the Wall, with her daughter, Chloe. In this episode, you will learn how even through life's tragedies, you can still live a miraculous existence. Olivia, you are one of Australia and the world's most beloved stars. You grew up the youngest of three. Uh, Your sister is Rona and your brother, Hugh. How was your childhood? Um, My childhood was probably quite difficult in that we, I was born in England and then when I was five years old, we migrated to Australia. And my father was uh, the headmaster of Warman College in Melbourne. He was the youngest headmaster ever in Australian history at that point. So he was 40 years old and the master of a college in Melbourne. And we moved into this enormous stone mansion. And my brother and sister were um, older than me, eight and 10 years older. So I was kind of the baby of the family. My parents were not very happy and having a lot of trouble at the time. So it was quite a difficult um, time. We lived there for a couple of years in the lodge, as it was called, and then my parents separated and I had to move and live with my mother into an apartment about 20 minutes away from my dad. So I wasn't able to see him as often. I would go and visit him after school. But my childhood was... um, probably quite difficult. Divorce was not as common in those days as it is now. So coming from a divorced family, my mother found and I found that I was kind of isolated a little bit because couples wouldn't invite her over as often anymore because my mother was young and beautiful and (laughs) the wives didn't want her around. So she felt isolated, which kind of was impactful on me as well. So I'd say it was a, it was a, I had a wonderful childhood in as much as I had great parents and went to good schools and everything, but I think it was emotionally quite difficult. You say the your parents' divorce was the most painful moment of your young life. And mm. I feel that is 
so unbelievably common with with children that come from parents that are divorced and people don't quite realise how impactful it actually is. You say that your school life was really affected by that as well. Yeah, I think I lost focus. I remember being in school and always finding that I didn't understand what was going on. And when I think about that now, it's because my mind was distracted emotionally with all that was going on at home. So I wasn't able to focus um, as I wish I could have, because now I kind of regret the fact that I wasn't more focused on education because now I'm really interested in a lot of the things that I wasn't interested in then, apart from music and drama, which maybe was the reality anyway. But um, I had one teacher um, who obviously took an interest in me and was concerned about me and asked if she could come home with me after school and realised that I was a latchkey kid, you know, I'd let myself in and she took me to the zoo and she spent time with me and the kind of teacher that you hope is available for children now because so many children are going through those difficulties. So when I think of it, there must have been signs that I was struggling because this teacher took such an interest in me. But um, I was pretty happy. I was a happy kid, but these underlying emotional things I think really affected my, my, my education. Isn't it interesting how you mentioned that teacher of yours, how there can be one person in someone's life that plays such a big part in potentially changing that person's life forever? I mean, what was that support like for you? Not, I, I mean, you don't hear about that often that a teacher will reach out to a student that they notice might be struggling and almost take them under their wing. Yeah, it was, it, well, you know, I didn't really realise mm. the importance of it until much later in my life when I realised that that was a really kind thing for her to do and it showed great concern. And so I, I really respect teachers and because they work extremely hard, they're underpaid, and they have now a lot of emotional things to deal with with the children, not only just the schoolwork, but they're, you know, good teachers are really aware of their students' emotional life as well. So I'm very grateful to her for... Um, showing that concern. Her name was Susan. I didn't know her last name. And Miss Susan, I think she was called. And then I had another teacher later in my life, uh, Mr Hogan, who I had been on television at that point. I was in my leaving. I can say that in Australia because you know what leaving year is, the year before matric. And um, I was considering whether to go back and finish my last year at school, but I was very distracted with my singing and my working at that point. And he said to me, listen, matriculation is a really hard year and if you're going to be thinking about singing and you're not going to be focused on it, you're not going to, it's not, you're not going to make it. So I would follow your heart. Something to that extent, he said to me, which really oh, changed the course wow. of my life. And so I did. And I, I've decided I would, you know, he really reinforced the idea of what I wanted to do. So I left school and I focused on my career and went to England with my mum with a trip that I'd won on Sing, Sing, Sing on the Johnny O'Keefe show. And uh, so a couple of teachers had a really powerful effect on me. It is. It's those words like you said that follow your heart. I mean, that, that can be quite a courageous move to follow your heart. And especially when these days, there's a lot of pressure put on children from their parents about wanting them to go into certain fields and and this will make a lot of money and becoming a lawyer or a doctor, we would be so proud if you did that. But having a teacher, so a person of status saying, follow your heart, that is like a blessing. 
Yeah, really, it was a blessing. I may, I'm not quoting him exactly because it's many, many years ago, but the, but the, his message was, you're not going to make it through if you're going to be thinking about something else, so you should do what you really want to do. And, of course, this wasn't very popular with my parents because my father was a professor, my mother was the daughter of a Nobel Prize winner, so they wanted me to finish school, go to university, because my sister Rona had left school and become an actress, so here I was doing... The same thing. My brother was a doctor or studying to be a doctor at that time. So it was not easy um, to convince my parents. But once I'd made that decision, they were supportive. And my mum wanted me to get the best training that I could, if that's the life I decided on, and wanted me to go to RADA in England and study acting, which I didn't do, of course, because she wanted me to. (laughs) (laughs) Typical teenager, right? Yeah. (laughs) You... You talk about music and poetry as being the two biggest things in your life when you were young. Where did you find your love for them? I don't know. I think it was just innately in me. Mm. Um, I think you're born with a, a love of these things. My father had a beautiful singing voice. He was a bass baritone and he he could have had a career as a singer. He, he was a really beautiful singer and a beautiful man. But he was so much a perfectionist, which is where I got it from, that he heard a recording of himself with one bad note in it and he destroyed the acetate as it was in those days and he decided he wouldn't he couldn't do it because he was too critical of himself but he was also very brilliant so he stayed in academia instead you tell a funny story about i think it was in church when he was singing very loudly next to you and you were so embarrassed but he did have as you say a beautiful voice it was beautiful voice. It was really loud. And he would, now I think of it, um, he would sing harmonies in church. So yes. everyone else was singing the melody, which is where I get it from. My dad would sing the harmony. And that, that was even more embarrassing because he was being different. You know, as a kid, you don't want your parents to stand out. Yes. It would be different. So, but I'm grateful to them both because the things that they imbued in me have served me mm. well in life and... I've learned so much from them and from their intelligence. And, you know, my mum took me away from Australia when I was 15 and literally dragged me by the ear to England. I didn't want to go. And um, it was the best thing ever, even though I was so angry at her at the time. You say about your mum that she, she was such a strong woman and she was smart and she was selfless. She taught you kindness will sustain you. How has knowing that changed your life? I think it was just, you know, I think just watching her, you just learn from what you see. And I just remember her doing kind and selfless things for her friends all the time. Like she had a bathroom put in for a friend who was had just got out of hospital and couldn't go downstairs. So she had a bathroom put in on the level next to her room and things like that. She wasn't a rich woman. I mean, I helped her, but she wasn't a rich woman. And yet she would always do kind things like that and buy little gifts for people and she was very thoughtful. So I think um, that was an invaluable lesson because kindness, whether you experience it, like I'd experienced it from my teachers and other people and from my mum, is the most important lesson you can teach your children. Be kind to the earth, be kind to animals and be kind to each other. You also tell actually a beautiful story which makes, it really made her seem so unbelievably selfless. Your husband, uh, your your father, sorry, obviously left your mother and he remarried and they had some children. And you tell a story about how your mum 
bought presents for when the when, when one of the children were were born. Yeah, she bought gifts for um, Sarah and Toby, who I'm very close to, my brother and sister by my dad's second marriage to Valerie. And she became friends with my dad's new wife. And um, I'm sure they shared some good stories too. But they became good friends. And after my and after my father was divorced from his second wife, sadly, they remained friends. And my mum taught me that. She taught me to um, be kind, be thoughtful, and not to hold grudges because she remained friends with my dad. I mean, she went through many years of upset and anger because she loved him very much, but she still maintained dignity with him and and with his new wife and his third wife also, actually. And I feel, Olivia, the way that Australia knows you and knowing all the work that you have done, that is where you get your beautiful nature, your beautiful heart, your success even. I mean, things happen to people who are not so nice, but I feel that your continued success is to do with your beautiful personality and your 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 giving nature. And I, I feel a lot of this potentially comes from your mother. Thank you. Thank you for the kind words. I mean, I've been incredibly lucky in my career with amazing producers and amazing songs. And, you know, I have had an incredible career success. And thank you for your kind words. But, yeah, my mum, definitely. And I think as you get older, you realise... I don't think you realise when you're young the impact of your parents uh, mm. on your life until you're older and you have children of your own and you can see the patterns and, and hope you can pass on the, the right qualities. And I'm seeing it in my daughter now, Chloe, who has such a beautiful heart and is so kind and compassionate and I hope that I've passed it on again as she will to her children. Absolutely. And winding the clock forward, it's 1971, Chicago, Jim Jacobs and Warren Casey write a play about youth culture. It's to do with love, friendship, rebellion, teen pregnancy, and it becomes known as Grease. Grease then becomes a film and John Travolta wants you as the main star. You have a great story that you tell about having dinner one night at Helen Reddy's house where you get offered the role for the first time. Helen Reddy and her husband at the time, Jeff Wald, used to have Sunday night movie nights and dinners where they invite people over and they and I would go there quite often. Helen really was the person who encouraged me to move to America in the first place. So they had been really dear friends to me. Helen, you know, was a big star here and I was just starting out. I had a couple of hits. And she said, Love, if you want to make it here, you need to move to America. And I did. So um she invited me for dinner and Alan Carr was there and I didn't know it, but they had this plan because he was looking for his Sandy for the for the movie that he was producing of Grease. He already had, had chosen John Travolta. John apparently had seen me and uh, thought I was right for the role. And uh, I was afraid of it actually because I'd made a movie a few years before called Tomorrow that was a musical as well, made at Pinewood in London. Three guys and myself, we were supposed to be the new monkeys and big production, big studio production. They flew us all over the world and it totally bombed. (laughs) So I was very nervous of doing another musical 
And especially as I had to play a 15-year-old and I was 28 or something at the time when I met him. So I was like, oh, I'm not sure I want to do this. And, you know, and so Jeff Wald, who was married to Helen, said, well, you better go see the play because at least you need to know what it's about. So I went to see the play. I was in London at the time um, and went to see it. And Richard Gere was Danny Zuko. So that was really interesting. That's before he took off in movies. And I loved, I thought it was a great show, but I was still very nervous of it. And then, so they sent John Travolta to talk me into it. <laughs> How can you resist that, right? So <laughs> John well, Travolta comes walking up my driveway with those piercing blue eyes. I always remember that and I opened the door and he says, you know, I want you to be Sandy. I think you're perfect for it. And I said, well, I'm really worried. I'm all of 28 and how am I going to be 15 and 16 or something? And he says, well, you know, none of us are that age. Everyone in the cast is going to be older. So it's Hollywood. That's that's how things work here. So I said, okay, well, I'm not sure I can pull this off. So if they will let me do a screen test with you, then if I can watch the screen test and I think that I can do it, then, then I'll, you know, I'll, I'll agree to it. So that's exactly what happened. We did a screen test with um, Randall Kleiser, who was the director, and and we had chemistry and it worked and it was really comfortable and that's really how it started. You talk about John in your book and you say he radiates pure joy and love and cares so much for other human beings on such a deep level. What a beautiful and kind thing to say about someone. Are you still great friends to this day? Yeah, we are. We're really good friends. And um, we always will be. I think we shared something incredibly unique making that film that is still so loved, you know, mm-hmm. and it's it, it keeps our friendship together. And uh, last year, last Christmas, a year ago, blimey, we did um, three Grease sing-alongs in uh, Florida. They were going to be continued during this year, but, of course, they may just be the three we ever do now because of the pandemic. But um, he's really a dear person and... Um, very fond of him, love him. The way of the world has obviously changed and recently there was backlash about, some people started writing backlash about Greece saying that it was sexist, it had a lack of diversity and all this stuff. You talk about in the book about how at an early age you learnt to deal with criticism and this obviously wasn't a personal attack or anything, it was about Greece, not you personally, but when you hear things like that, how, how do you deal with that? Well, in this particular instant, I think it's kind of silly because, you know, the yes. movie was made in the 70s, about the 50s. It was a stage play. It's a musical. It's fun. It's a fun movie musical and not to be taken so seriously. I think everyone's taking everything so seriously. Yes. We need to relax a little bit and just enjoy things for what they are. And um, I didn't see it like that at all. And I think it's just a, a fun movie that entertains people. That's <laughs> all. Yes, no, I absolutely agree with you. How has that, that though, dealing with criticism uh, over your career and learning to do that, how has that helped you along, along your path? Well, you know, criticism, I don't think anyone likes criticism. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it's constructive criticism, it can be really beneficial. Um, I used to suffer from criticism, you know, you'd read a review and you'd see one bad line and you'd focus on that apart, apart from the 80 other nice things yes. that were said, which I think is a human thing. So I stopped reading uh, articles and reviews because it was, you know, it does, it, you can't help it, it become personal. 
and it can be upsetting. So I just kind of remove myself from that situation now and realise that, what's that saying? It's going to be tomorrow's fish and chip paper. So <laughs> just let it go. That's so true. And I think, like you said, not reading those sort of things, not even putting yourself in there allows you to not know about them. And yeah, and it's better. Denial, exactly. denial is a great thing in life, I've found. Yes. Particularly this year. <laughs> Absolutely. You married your first husband, Matt, in 1984, and one year and one month later, you had your beautiful daughter, Chloe. At the start of your memoir, Don't Stop Believing, you you dedicate it to Chloe and you say, you are my world and I love you bigger than the universe. When I, when I, I listened to your book on Audible so I could hear your voice the whole time, and when I heard that at the start, it actually brought tears to my eyes because as a mother myself, I thought, wow, that's... It's so true. The the love that a parent has for their child is is just so unbelievably powerful. How how has being a parent to Chloe changed your life? I think it just puts everything into perspective because up until the point you have a child, it's all about you mm. and all about your world. And then this little being comes into the world and you're totally responsible for this being, for its health for its thoughts, for its manners. I mean, there's a million things that you're responsible for. And then you realise that this little being has a mind of its own and its own personality. And as much as you can imbue all the things that you want it to know, it's it's going to have its own mind and its own thoughts. And um, it's the most amazing adventure there is, is to have a child. And you, they never, as you know, they never stop being your child. No matter how old they are, yes. they're still your child, no matter how old. I remember my mother used to worry about me when I was in my 50s, you know, and I used to go, Mum, you know? <laughs> and now I realise I'm going to be exactly the same. You can't help it. It's just innate in you because the love that you have for your children is beyond anything else. And it's um, unconditional, pretty much. <laughs> It's so true, though. I I still get angry at my parents to this day for treating me when I see them like I'm I, I am a child. But like you said, I am still their child. And having yes, children myself, yes. I realize. I mean, they're young, but I realize you know when they're in their forties or fifties, they're still going to be my child, and nothing will take that away. So <laughs> it's that internal battle that I think you always have with your parents. But when you become a parent, you realize where it all comes from. That's right. You know that saying they have as you're as happy as your unhappiest child? That is so true. That's I mean, so I only true. have one child. So I imagine if you have two or three and you're worried about a couple of them, it must be really exhausting because I know yes. with Chloe that, you know, if anything is up with her or she's hurt or she's worried or she's ill or anything, that that feeling is to, comes back like a newborn. You still have that same concern. Olivia, that's so true. I often think to myself, and my children are uh, eight and six, so they're young. I think when one of them's upset, it makes me really upset. And I think, what yeah. am I going to do when they're teenagers? If I'm feeling like this now, God help me in a few years when the problems actually <laughs> are proper problems. That's right. But you, you weather, as you get older, you weather it a little better because you've been, yes. you know, you're kind of used to it a little more. But yeah, they're always your babies, though. Well, that's true. <laughs> well, Olivia, like I said earlier on, you've had an absolutely extraordinary life, but your life hasn't been exempt from pain. Your father passed away in 1992 and you also found out that you had cancer. 
that's when you were first diagnosed. A lot of the people I have spoken to on this podcast, a lot of the neuroscience psychologists, people like Joe Dispenza and Bruce Lipton, a lot of them talk about the mind-body connection. How much of an effect do you think that's had having some traumas in your life on your health? Oh, I think there's an, an amazing connection. I think the traumas on your life have a great effect and also the healing. I mean, our, our, our head is here and our body's here and people tend to think of them as two different things, but we're all connected. Yes. And what you think and what you feel affects your whole anatomy, your whole body. So it's really important what you put into your mind as well as into your mouth for health. You know, the thoughts that you choose to keep and the thoughts that you choose to not think about, it's really important. You need to, especially on a healing journey, focus on positivity and good health and seeing things in a good light because it, it affects your whole being. You know, you you. I can't reinforce that enough. That's why at the mm. ONJ Centre in Melbourne, it was so important for me to have a wellness centre there so that the patients were not only cared for in the medical sense, but they were cared for spiritually and, you know, mind-body is really important is to yes. keep, keep things you enjoy doing, to keep a positive mind, to focus on things other than being sick. It's really important. And I, as I was saying before, denial is a really good thing too, not to think about it all the time. I always reinforce yeah. to people who, are, who have cancer or some other illness to not focus on it all the time, to focus on the healing part, to focus on the positivity and see a way through and visualise getting through this and being healthy again. It's really important. I know natural therapies are a big part of, of, of the therapy that you do with your cancer healing. What sort of stuff do you find that has really worked for you? Well, the thing that's worked for me incredibly is plant medicine, which is why I formed the ONJ Foundation Fund, which is a foundation to raise money to fund research into plant medicine for cancer and to find kinder treatments for cancer because that is what has been so beneficial for me. I mean, for the last seven years, I have had um, breast cancer metastases and I feel fantastic. I have had uh, radiation a few years ago, but apart from that, I've been using natural herbs and plant medicine. Um, I had a few pharmaceuticals in the beginning, but I weaned myself off them because they made me more sick. So uh, my husband is a plant medicine man. He really is. They call him Amazon John for the many years he lived in the Amazon rainforest and worked there rather and had a company where he brought herbs back. Um, for healing, which is an amazing story in itself. When his book comes out, it'll be so wonderful. And uh, so he also is growing cannabis for me on the property and as you're allowed to do here. And uh, the cannabis has been amazing for me for, for pain, for inflammation, for mind, for sleep. Um, that we, that's why this foundation is so important because even though there is a lot of research already on, on cannabis and, and other plants, uh, we want to do our own research and bring the science to people to say, look, this is, this is what is happening and this is what can happen yeah. and it's a kind of way. Like when I was, I was in my ONJ centre a couple of years ago because I had a fractured sacrum and I was in my own centre, which was a blessing beyond. They're so amazing and I had fantastic treatment. But I was taking morphine for pain because it was extreme. But when I got back to America, I weaned myself off the morphine with cannabis. And that's, that says a lot because cannabis is safe. 
You don't die from cannabis, yeah. but you can die from opiates. And, you know, people are dying daily from these strong painkillers. So I really want to have more research on that to show people that this is possible and in a safe way. Do you use meditation as a big part of your practice? I do. Um, I used to meditate kind of on a regular basis. Now I, I sit in nature and that is my own meditation to sit and watch yes. the birds and the trees and and read and and pray. I pray and I chant with my Buddhist friends. So I, I have all different things that I do to keep my mind focused. I had a, a minor operation many years ago and I remember one of my great spiritual teachers taught me a visualisation technique that was so unbelievably powerful. And I remember he said to close your eyes and imagine this beautiful ray of white light coming into the affected area and imagining all the cells getting better and healing and just the feeling of pure love coming into your body. I am not joking, Olivia. I have no doubt in my mind that that the healing was so slow before I learned that technique. And as soon as I learned it, I did it every day religiously and my my transformation of healing absolutely changed rapidly after that. Do you do any things like that? Absolutely. I was watching a woman recently who was talking about the mind and the and the mind connection. And yeah. she said it in a different way. And it was really interesting to me because I'd always prayed and I talked to my body and I say, you know, I asked the cancer to leave. It's not welcome. I don't need it. But I don't fight. You know, people talk about fighting cancer. For me, yes. that sets up a terrain of acidity and it sets up a terrain of anger that is not, for me, not conducive to healing. I don't want to fight anything. I want to be at peace mm. with it. So I talk about um, it leaving on its own because it's not welcome anymore. It doesn't need to be there anymore. And I see white light in my body and I see healing. I do all that too. But she also said, which is really interesting, you need to command your body. I, I command it. I direct it. I tell you that I need you to be the wellness center that I am. I thought that was a wonderful visual visualization and uh, I do that and I've actually if I get a headache or something I command my body to heal it please you know go there and heal it and it works also so I I use all kinds of different techniques um, that work for me and obviously I'm glad they work for you too that's great. I think using those sort of techniques, they're overlooked a lot of times, but using them as well as doing all the other things that people do do, what do you have to lose by just trying? That's that's what I always think. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, and people who are nervous of those things, who are scared of trying new things, um, you know, that doesn't, it can't hurt you and it could possibly help you. And, you know, people say, well, how can you be positive when you're going through this? It's extremely important to be positive when you're going Mm. through a health struggle because that affects your body and your physiology. It really does. It keeps the body more alkaline and more balanced. And obviously you need to pay attention to nutrition as well. But I had a doctor once, what you put into your mouth is is what goes into your mind. I mean, both those things are equal. What you feed your body and what you feed your mind are Mm. equally important because if you're eating well but you're thinking negative thoughts and thinking, about being sick and all these things, it doesn't help. You need to feed your body positivity and and good messages as well. That's so unbelievably true. I actually interviewed a guy on this podcast, A Life of Greatness, a few months ago who was a a doctor and his his specialty was on 
on researching spontaneous remissions. And one of the things that he said exactly like you, it was a few pillars, it was the mind, it was what you put into your body as well. But he said that a lot of the people who were diagnosed with these terminal illnesses started using a plant-based diet and they found the effects to be absolutely life-changing. What diet do you follow? You know, for the last few months, um, I've been eating a vegan diet pretty much exclusively. Yes. I've, I've strayed a couple of times, but um, my uh, niece and nephew who are actually filming this for us right now and filmed the video for Window in the Wall, who have a wonderful um, company called Talk Back TV, uh, they are vegan and my daughter is vegan. So when Chloe was staying oh, wow. here and we're all together and we're cooking meals every night, I started to eat that way and found that I felt really good on it. I felt even better than before, actually. So I've been eating a pretty vegan diet for quite a few while. And I mean, in my life, I've been vegetarian. I've been macrobiotic. I, I've tried different diets. But I think it's just balancing, balancing your food and finding out what makes you feel best and how your body mm. feels best. And I do cheat, you know. I like a, a good um, biscuit with a cup of tea and all those things. But um, yes. I do... I'm enjoying a vegan diet very much. And I think it's kinder for the planet. It's kinder for the animals. And I think the world is leaning towards... Um, I've noticed that most young people that I know are vegan or vegetarian now because I yes. think it's a, a kind of a knowingness that we have that this cruelty, cruelty to animals has to stop and also the methane that is produced by the animals is causing climate change. So it's kind of a win-win for the animals in that case. Um, so... Yeah, I, I'm enjoying it very much, actually. Olivia, when diagnosis like cancer obviously is given to anyone, it hits you like a ton of bricks and reality yeah. really comes cold in your face and you realise that you're not here forever and that, and that death is a part of life. Have you contemplated your death at, at any stage and what happens, what you think happens when we die? Um, I've had quite a few times where I've contemplated it as being a possibility as sooner than I would have wanted it. <laughs> I mean, we all know that we're going to die. I think we spend our mm. lives probably much in denial of it. Um, even we're the probably only part of the species that has that awareness, except for animals that are actually dying. They have an innate knowingness and yes. often go away to be by themselves mm. to die. Um, what I feel about it, it's extremely personal. So I've, I find that hard to put into words. I believe that we are all part of one, one thing. Yeah. And I've had experiences with, um, how can I put it? Spirits, I guess, or spirit life mm. or felt the spirit world or have heard things that I believe there is something that happens. I think we all go into, it's almost like we're parts of a big computer and we go back to the main battery. I don't know. I, I think a lot of the time people call it home. We go yeah, home. Exactly. So I, you know, I don't have a definite definition of what it is. Um, some people call it heaven. Some people call it the universe, um, I, I just think there's a great knowingness out there that we become part of. Mm. And I, 
I hope that the energies of the people that you love are there, but I think all the love will be there because everyone that I know who's had a near-death experience, my husband being one of them, says it's the most unbelievable feeling of love that you have ever experienced and you don't want to come back. So I'm kind of looking forward to that. Not now, but when it happens. I mean, I've heard the same from people who have had near-death experiences. There are a lot of different belief systems, but they all seem to have the same ending. Either we come back as something else or we go to heaven or we join others in the spirit world. But most humans, we want to believe that we go on. Yeah. I don't know if that is so. And I hope that I can let people know when it happens, if it is. (laughs) You have had quite a bit of death surround you in your life. Your father and your mother and your beautiful sister, Rona, as well as your goddaughter, have you felt and my brother and, and my brother too? Yes, and your brother. Have you felt them around you, and do you call on them to support you at times? I have felt them. I, um, with my mother at the moment of her passing. Very shortly after she passed, I went to sit with her in her bedroom. We had candles all around the room, on the windowsill, and on her you know, bedside table, and on the outside in the hallway as you came in the front door, we had her photographs and flowers and a beautiful candle that I'd brought from America. And I went in to sit with my mum a couple of minutes after she had passed and asked her to please give me a sign of some kind that she was all right because when her mother died, she had told me that at the moment of her mother's passing, her mother's photograph fell off the wall in her room and there was no reason for it. There was no earthquake, nothing had happened. It had been on the wall forever and it fell. So I went and said, Mum, you know, please give me a sign that everything is okay. And as I'm sitting there, my sister Rona calls out, Olivia, come out here. And I'm thinking, gosh, can't I just be left alone with Mum just for one minute? So eventually I got up and I walked out of the room. It still gives me goosebumps. And the glass candle that had been in the hallway sitting on the table had shattered. <gasps> wow. And I still, I'm covered in goosebumps because it was one of those moments where you, we started laughing because mm. I said to Rona, I just asked Mum for a sign and she, she shattered the candle. So it was just bizarre. And um, with my sister, I felt her spirit leave. I was with her. And I felt her spirit leave her body and lift up and, and go out the window. And a Buddhist friend of my sister's, her best friend, had had told me that she was going to leave on a wind horse. And when she died, we opened the window and this wind came in and, and, this, and her, I felt it. It was uncanny. So I've had a couple of experiences like that and a few other ones separate from people's passing that um, made me feel good about it. What did it feel like when your sister's sister's energy spirit passed through? It was it was elevating. It was a positive thing. It was like, wow, that's amazing. You know, we are not we're a vessel that carries around a spirit. Mm. And when the body has worn, then the spirit goes on and that's That's beautiful. That's a beautiful image to keep. That's so beautiful, Olivia. What has your cancer taught you about living? Oh, gratitude. Even more gratitude for every day. You know, it feels like it is a blessing. I mean, life is a blessing anyway. But when your life is threatened by something, by an illness or um, an accident or whatever, and your life is threatened, you really 
become so grateful for every day and for the little things. I mean, I've always been conscious of them. I have to say, I've always loved nature and animals and all those things, but it's heightened when when your life is threatened. I have a friend recently who, um, she's going through COVID right now and she hasn't been well for about three weeks. She's been really sick. And I spoke to her yesterday and, and she seemed to be turning the corner a little bit. And she said, you know, I feel really terrible, but I also feel so incredibly grateful because I've really realized how amazing my life is. And even though I kind of realized it, I now have real uh, gratitude for every day. So I think it does that to you. It, it, it um, makes you realize how important a lot of the little things that you worried about were yeah. and just to, to love and forgive, which is what it's about. How important is it for you to be in the present moment? Oh, that's everything. Because I think once you start, I mean, the present moment is all we have. We can't live in the yes. past and the future's not here yet. So the present is all we have. And I think that's one of the most important lessons to live, remember is this is it. This now, mm. and what I just said is gone already. So <laughs> you have to be here right now and enjoy and appreciate that moment, this moment for what it is. And I think as well, especially having an illness, you, you know, you could worry so much about the future and what your life is going to be. But if you do look at the present moment as hard as I'm sure it is and just take that every every second as it comes and you know you're safe and you know that you're happy and that is all that, as you said, we have. That's all we have. And even if you have, you know, problems going on with your health or whatever, as long as you're still breathing, <laughs> you know, I see it's... It, it's an amazing gift life. It's such a beautiful thing. And when you just look around, um, I look around where I live, I'm so lucky that I have mountains and trees and birds and horses and chickens and, you know, animals have always been my most, um, I think the thing I love most since I was a child. I was going to be a vet or I thought I was going to be a vet except I was hopeless at math and <laughs> you had to have math to pass the first two years of, of pre-med. So, and then luckily I could sing. That's all I can say. Well, it's done you well. And <laughs> onto that, you've just released an unbelievably beautiful song with your gorgeous daughter, Chloe. It's called Window in the Wall. Can you tell us what made you want to perform a song together? It's an interesting story because I really um, wasn't contemplating singing anymore or performing for sure. And I had recorded a song with Barry Gibb, which I'm very delighted to say is on the Greenfield album that I think is number one in Australia. It's number one around the world. I'm so thrilled for Barry. He, he's so amazing and he so deserves it. So that was done a year before and I thought I didn't really have any plans to sing. And then out of the blue, this woman who I'd met at a health clinic sent me a song and she said, um, I have a knowingness and a calling that you need to record this song. And my cousin wrote it. So immediately I went, oh gosh, your cousin wrote it. This is going to be awful. How am I, going to, how am I going to tell her? It's terrible, right? So I play. I said to my husband John, "Listen to this. Uh, Cindy's cousin wrote it, and I, I just hope it's not too bad." And then we played it, and we both felt so emotional. It really touched our hearts, and I just felt this knowingness that I had to record this song, as she had said, which was so amazing, and. Um, the first person I thought of to record it was Chloe because it was such a personal song, even though it was not her style, it was not her genre of music. Um, and I was just driven to record this song. And luckily enough, I got to 
have it produced by Dave Cobb, who produced Barry's album. And he did it remotely for Nashville. We were here in California. Uh, the track was done in Nashville and we did it locally here in a little studio together. And, um, and here we are. And then my niece and nephew, who are filming us right now, uh, were the um, producers and directors of the video. And we shot it in my backyard. There's a beautiful lyric in the in the song. We find we are not so different after all. And it goes back to that conversation we were having at the start about how, you know, so it says that we come from source and you go from oneness to 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 being separate in this world. And then it's about coming back to being one again. I, I find that to be such a such a beautiful line. Yeah, there's some beautiful, beautiful lyrics in that song and just the visual mm. of a window in the wall of seeing through the other side, through the other person's perspective and still loving them and realising that we are all the same. Yes. You know, we're different colours and sizes and ages, but we are all humans. We're all sharing this planet and we're at one with the animals and nature. We are part of nature and we have kind of distance ourselves from it like we're separate, but we're not. We're all one thing. And we're all sharing this planet at the same time for a reason. And we need to be in a... I just... I visualise peace. That's Mm. what I visualise, peace between us all. What's been your most mystical experience? This lady was driving me through this... It was a, a big estate... Uh, divided up into lots uh, in, in Hawaii. And Chloe yes. and her dad had gone home and I was just looking at land because we loved Hawaii. And as we're driving around, I was looking at the lots and I suddenly felt like a like a stabbing feeling in my throat, like someone was pressing a knife into my throat. That's, all, that's the only way I can describe it. And I said to the lady who was driving, I said, oh, gosh, she said, I said, I feel like... Um, someone's like got me by the throat. I don't know what to do. If this continues, you might have to take me to the hospital. And she said, well, you know, there was a big um, battle here and some other tribes came up out of the water and there was a big fight on this land. And it was really interesting because none of the lots had been built on and they'd all been for sale for a long time. And when she said this, I, I took the piece of paper and I said, It's okay, I'm not going to buy it. And I threw the paper down on the floor of the car and the pain went away. Wow. And that gives me goosebumps too when I remember that. And it was was so unexpected and so bizarre. I know it was real because I even told her what was happening to me. So there was a definite presence there. Um, I've heard that a lot about Hawaii, but I actually got to experience it. So I've had a few things like that, but that was probably the most powerful one. That's unbelievably powerful. You spoke earlier on about prayer. What is your favourite prayer? Probably the Lord's Prayer. Mm. Um, I was taught it as a child. Um, My father, he was a master of a Ormond College. He was a Presbyterian college. And um, uh, so we went to church and my parents had taught me. I don't know when I learned it, but I remember learning it very young. And I've always said it. And uh, I remember when I was pregnant with Chloe and I was... Um, close to losing her at one point and I had to go to bed and I remember saying, I asked God to please save Chloe and if he did, I would say the Lord's Prayer every night for the rest of my life and so I have. And so it is my favourite prayer. I think it's a beautiful prayer. It's a powerful prayer. I believe in prayer. I think prayer is very powerful. 
Um, I believe all, all the beliefs have, you know, validity and, and meaning to a lot of people, but I find that prayer a very powerful one. When Rona died, uh, the Lord's Prayer was said as well, I, I think I read in your book. Yes, correct. What's the best advice that you've ever been given? Um, oh, I think early on in my career, uh, an agent said to me or somebody that I respected, um, don't believe your own handouts. Don't believe things that are written about you, which was really good advice because, as I think I said earlier, I stopped reading uh, reviews and things because you, they can be so upsetting to you either way, whether they're too good or they're yes. too bad. So that was a that was a really good piece of advice. What's your greatest hope for society today? Wow. Well, of course, that we find health, that we, you know, we return to a healthy society that can function as we as we wish to do. Um, and for peace, peace on earth. I mean, war to me is such a an awful and unnecessary evil that um, I, I think I pray for peace and peace between people and between nations. What is a life of greatness to you? A healthy, happy, fulfilled life with, with purpose. Olivia Newton-John, you are one of the world's most brightest lights and you know, from the bottom of my heart, I can't thank you enough for all of the work that you've done with with the Cancer Institutes and giving back and just your service to, to the world. Thank you so much for the chat today. Oh, thank you. You're a really good interviewer, by the way, and it was very interesting. But you led me onto places that I haven't talked about for a long time. So thank you. I enjoyed it. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. Listener.